When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a very special edition of The Other Hand podcast. My guest today is Professor Chris Gray. He will be known to many in Ireland and elsewhere, of course. Based in Cambridge, Chris became known to many of us as a blogger, particularly in the aftermath of the Brexit referendum. So rather than do the formal readout, his bio and all that kind of stuff that often happens in these things, I'm going to ask Chris to introduce himself, and in particular to perhaps elaborate briefly on the circumstances that led to him actually launching that very famous blog. Hello, Chris. Thanks ever so much for uh, inviting me to uh, to talk to you and, uh, and to talk to your listeners. Um, well, um, gosh, how do I introduce myself? I mean, very briefly, I'm an academic. I originally studied economics and politics. I wrote a PhD on Regulation of Financial Services, which I don't think anybody ever read, apart from my examiner. I ended up working in this rather strange field of organisation studies, which is really a, a, a kind of part of business or business and management. I ended up being a professor of that at Cambridge University and then Warwick and then um, Royal Holloway. And a lot of my work, at, you know, well, I mentioned the PhD, which was on regulation, and a lot of my work was as an academic, was sort of on the interface between sort of politics and, and business, but nothing to do with the EU particularly. And then in terms of the Brexit kind of blog, I mean, what what happened with Brexit was that in the run-up to the referendum, I just became aware of the fact that some of the things that were being said, particularly about, about kind of trade and regulation, were just plain factually wrong. And so I wrote a, a few little articles, non-academic articles, um, and I got invited to, you know, to give various kinds of talks 
public talks to people, which they seemed to quite appreciate. And then there was the vote. I was, you know, surprised by the result. I thought it would be a narrow vote uh, to remain, but I did expect it to be narrow, but I thought it would be to remain. So when it got through to the September, I suppose, afterwards, and I came back from summer holiday, and I thought, you know, I just felt as if I would like to have some kind of a voice in that, however small that would be, you know. And, and you know, so I started writing a blog. There's millions of blogs in the world, right? And kind of, and obviously, initially, nobody read it. I mean, you know, nobody was there, or very few. I'm familiar with that concept. Yeah, you know, so you have to sort of, and 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 it wasn't really until until I, I somewhat actually reluctantly to kind of. I started a Twitter account and, and the, the began to sort of publicise it and, and do other things about Brexit. And, and then through a, a series of sort of flukes of, of people with sort of quite large followerships on Twitter, um, it began to it began to take off. So that was the background. And, you know, in terms of why it took off, I mean, did you, did you want me to talk about that? or? Um... Well, perhaps the, the natural thing to talk about really then is the blog grew and grew for a number of years. Even now that Brexit has actually happened, you've continued it. But more importantly, which has really given rise to this podcast and the reason why we're having a chat today, is that today you have published a book. Yes. Which has grown out of the the blog. It's not a collection of blogs or anything. It's not an anthology. It's not a collection. Uh, as, as you say in the book, it would the book would be a lot larger if it was. It's called Brexit Unfolded, How No One Got, the, got What They Wanted and Why They Were Never Going to Get It. Congratulations on the book. I have read it. It's got an awful lot in it. I could summarize it. And during this conversation, I probably will. But I thought I'd give you the opportunity at the very beginning, because there is an awful lot in this book. And there's an awful lot that I would consider marvelous stuff in this book. But what would you consider to be, if, if, you, if you're talking to me or a typical reader, and I think I, I would be, what would be the two or three things that you would want most for us to take away from this? There's a few things, obviously. I mean, one thing which I try to stress in, in the book and actually sort of the same in the blog as well is that is to try to sort of capture Brexit in all or at least many of, of its many dimensions. And I think that one of the things about Brexit that makes it quite kind of difficult to sort of comprehend is it is so kind of hydra-headed and it, you know, potentially there are a lot of people who, who have expertise in, in particular maybe quite narrow areas of things, perhaps to do with trade or to do with to do with uh, EU law or to do with Northern Ireland politics or, you know, various kinds of things. And, and that's fine. But I mean, I think that, 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 there's a, that it's important to sort of try to grasp it in a more, a more holistic kind of way. And I mean by that, that thinking of it as in terms of politics, in terms of economics, in terms of culture, in terms of a kind of uh, political psychology, which, which in some ways is, is is quite often talked about in the book. So I think there's that. So, so that's one kind of that, that's one broad and general sort of takeaway that I hope that people would would have from it. The other kind of keys kind of takeaway, and I almost thought about this as a subtitle for the book, but in the end it, it kind of seemed a bit too a, a bit too punchy. Was to sort of say that fundamentally you can't turn lies into policy. You can lie in politics, and that's not unusual, but you can't take things that fundamentally aren't true and make them true simply by saying it or simply by believing it. And so you can have all kinds of opinions about Brexit, but what you can't do, for example, as some of the Brexiters have tried to, tried to do or want to do, you can't say, well, we're not in the single market and the customs union, but we don't need a border. It's not a matter of opinion. You can't, you can't, you can't say, well, there's two sides to that argument. It's simply kind of it, it's it, it's simply not true, and then more fundamentally, and, and oh, not not more fundamentally, but another iteration of that, I suppose, 
Um, and one of the reasons why I think it was inevitable almost that people would end up not getting what they wanted is that you can't, you can't, all the time the presentation was that Brexit could be or would be cost-free, you know, not just economically, that as well, but, but you know, in all kinds of ways, that it would be, that, that, that it would be cost-free. And all the way, you know, not just in the referendum campaign, but all of the stuff from David Davis about, oh, well, we can have exact same benefits or we can have frictionless trade, you know, all of those kinds of things. And it's, well... You know, actually, you can't. It's very fundamental if you, if we're talking about trade, if you put up barriers to trade, then you will do less trade. It's not, this isn't something you can, you can, you can, you can wonder about the extent of it, you know, but you, but the fundamental proposition is there. And so, you know, you, you, so, 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 so I think that that is a kind of a core, a core takeaway. You can't turn lies into policy, whether they're about Brexit or anything else. And then I suppose a third thing, a third and final kind of takeaway is, um, and this is more to the kind of the political psychology around Brexit is, that, you know, I think that there's something very problematic, isn't there, about this idea of uh, the kind of self-pitying sense of victimhood that seems to underlie at least one important strand of Brexit. And, you know, you'll know, as I do, the great writing of Fintan O'Toole on, on this on this kind of theme. And actually also, I don't know, do you know the, do you know the Jonathan Coe novel, Middle England? Have yes, I do. Really, yeah. Yes. And and I kind of feel as if that captures quite nicely in that that sort of sense of you know even going back before Brexit this kind of sense of a rather bizarre sense from people who they were not necessarily talking about you know the left behind or anything like that but people who just who who, who had this kind of sense of well you know we're put upon we're bullied and you know all this kind of thing and again you know I'm pinching this. From, from this isn't from my book, it's, although I mentioned it, it's from Fintan, Fintan O'Toole. But you know, given that the oppression of being in the EU was imaginary, the liberation was always going to be disappointing. I think that's a great potential subtitle you mentioned there that you thought about it but rejected the idea that you can't turn lies into facts, and that raises all sorts of questions immediately in my mind about the psychology of this process, which was something I was going to ask you about in, in, in a number of regards, because the psychology of Brexit has, I think, proved endlessly fascinating. And this is one example of what I mean, because you say, by definition, you can't turn lies into facts. You and I will agree that that is demonstrably true, axiomatically true, but it didn't stop them from trying, did it? And if they tried to turn lies into facts, do you think they actually believed the lies themselves? Or do you think that this was just a form of campaigning that they realised was deeply cynical, but nevertheless would work? You know, I think that's really fascinating and complex question, isn't it? And of course, it's always impossible to generalise because, you know, we we talk about Brexiters, but they come in so many different, you know, kind of hues. But, But for what it's worth, you know, as a broad generalisation, I don't think that for the most part, it was a conscious process of lying. I think that for, for, that for many of them, and I'm talking, when I talk about them, I'm not really talking about, about leave voters. I'm talking about the, the leading figures or public figures around the, around the sort of Brexit movement. I think that, that many of them wanted it to be simple, wanted it to be, uh, all these complexities to be imaginary. And and somehow talk themselves into believing that that was so. And of course, in the process, therefore, talking themselves into the belief that if it wasn't so, then it must be because either the EU was being recalcitrant and was punishing them, or because they were being betrayed from the inside by Remainers, or the establishment, all of that kind of thing. And that may, and that, so that then becomes very toxic. But I think this idea of, you know, well, well, it ought to be like that. And, and one of the reasons I, I one of the reasons I, I, I say that and I, why I think that diagnosis is correct is because 
all the way through the, 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 the kind of Brexit story, which, by the way, is not at an end, of course. The book ends at the end of the transition period, but we can see playing out all the time now, you know, the ways that wasn't an end. But all the way through the process, you see how they would kind of jump onto, often, I think I use the expression in the book, semi-digested factoids, which were the answer. And, and it changed at different times. But, you know, but, but so sometimes it was the answer was, go WTO, or more narrowly, you know, suddenly there was this point in, I suppose it was, was it 2019, or, or it might have been in 2018, where they suddenly latched on to GATT Article 24, which supposedly, this is what, they were quite wrong, but they said, oh, well, that means, you know, that we don't need to have a deal, and we can just go on trading exactly the same way for 10 years whilst we sort of do a deal. It was nonsensical, you know, but, it, you know, that's the answer, and it was there. And, or similarly, I suppose, they latched on to, uh, you know, do you remember the Carlson report, which was the the kind of the, well, they always, the Brexiters always referred to it as an EU report, but it was actually a report by a consultant to uh, to the European Parliament. You know, oh, this was the, this was the technological solutions to the Irish, the Irish board, you know. And, and so I think that they, that those kind of leading Brexiters persuaded themselves that if only it wasn't for all the EU and the Remainers and so on, there was this thing. I think that was enormously dangerous because it was one thing for people to delude themselves. But if you were an ordinary voter listening to that, you know, being said in these very confident, authoritative tones, oh, yes, there's a, an Article 24 that all we have to do is trigger Article 24 and this will be the thing. You know, and, and I think you would listen to that and, and you would think as an ordinary voter, yeah, that's right. And then you would look around and say, well, why isn't Brexit happening? Well, obviously, because these politicians are determined to thwart the will of the people. I won't dwell on the psychology of this, although endlessly fascinating for me it is, but the, you talked about the delusion or the semi-delusion of some of these people, but the evolving mindset or the evolution of that delusion took many forms. And the simplest, and I think one of the more famous evolution uh, of that delusion was the, you can look it up on YouTube, the clip of people like Dan Hannan, Boris Johnson, Nigel Farage himself, prior to the referendum, all stating unambiguously that, of course, we're going to stay in the single market. And then somehow or other, and I suspect you're going to start talking about Theresa May's Lancaster House speech at this point, we evolved quite quickly into, they, we, well, we didn't mean it, or, or implicitly they would say they didn't mean it. It, it. it changed. And that was an extraordinary process, wasn't it? Because they were unequivocal during the campaign. There were one or two, but there were virtually none of the leading Brexiteers who said that leaving the single market and the customs union was the way forward. Well, I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I would kind of slightly kind of lay back on that because, I mean, that, that YouTube clip is in some ways that, that you're talking about, is in some ways a bit misleading because, for example, and I'm certainly not in the business of defending Nigel Farage, by the way, I would, you know, make that clear as you would expect. But, I mean, Nigel Farage in the UKIP position had changed by the time of the referendum campaign. That that that, that clip of him predates that time. So UKIP were, were, were already saying that. Um, but of course, you're right. Other people like Dan Hannan were certainly were certainly talking about you know, uh, you know Norway, so which implied the single market. And more than that, the the, the vote leave campaign material. And it was said it was it was both in the material and it was often stated by Michael Gove in various in particular in various speeches. And they had this very strange formulation, which was there's a free trade zone uh, that stretches from Iceland to Turkey and we will be part of it. Now, I think any normal person 
listening to that would anyone who knew about it would think well a free trade zone it's not a free trade zone it's a single market these are different things but the reference to iceland you know seemed to sort of at least imply this was he was talking about EFTA. you know and then as you say this you know almost from day one well sorry not almost from day one after the referendum a lot of the you know the, the kind of the brexit ultras were immediately saying having refused to specify a form of Brexit before, they thought they said, oh, it's not for us to do that, it's for the government to do that, you know, if, if the vote is to leave. They said, no, no, the vote mandated this 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 hard this you know hard Brexit as we called it at the time. And Theresa May came to embrace that. And he's, he's, you know, you just mentioned Lancaster House speech, but of course, what's so interesting about that is that the Lancaster House speech wasn't until January 2017. So if it were true that it was definitionally entailed by the vote to leave, that it meant hard Brexit, well, what were all those months in between all about? What were all those newspaper articles from Dominic Raab and Michael Gove and others in those months urging Theresa May to hard, you know, to, you know, to, 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 to hard Brexit? There would have been no urging to be done had it been definitional in the result. And then suddenly, well, some people think it was prefigured by the Tory conference speech in 2016, but it, it was really in terms said in Lancaster House in 2017. And I can remember that day, you know, and, and, and thinking, because I, until then I had kind of thought, because she'd been very ambiguous, I had kind of thought, look, surely this is, it, it seems so obvious that this would be, you know, the, 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 the way to go, in other words, you know, Norway. And I can remember, you know, kind of thinking, oh, you know, it, almost as much as I did on the day after the referendum, I thought, oh, God, these people are seriously going to, you know, I think I totally agree with you that Lancaster House was a was a pivotal moment in the run up to it. Just take a quick step back, because one of the things that I find interesting in my Anglo-Irish lifestyle that I've had for a number of years is, is, is living in Ireland, which is very hard to find a Eurosceptic anywhere. They exist, but they are largely regarded, quite rightly, as a cranky, very tiny minority. Have you Whereas, not seen Tozu Truckers, but have you seen Kate Hoey in the um, yes. Telegraph po- podcast today? Not today, no, but I know Kate Hoey's views. Saying that the, next, the logical next step is for Ireland to leave the EU. And again, that, sorry to go back to my psychology of delusion. How anybody could A, say it, B, believe it, is, is, is beyond belief. Um, according to all the evidences, of course, all of the opinion polls say that Ireland is the most Euro enthusi- European EU-enthusiastic country that there is for all sorts of quite very good reasons. I quite often tease my Irish friends by saying that one of the reasons why you're so enthusiastic, there are lots, but one of them is that it's been made easy for you by the British, that the the, the strain of Euroscepticism that is so prevalent in the UK has enabled you to be, um, in a way, anti-British by being pro-EU. And people in Ireland get very upset with, with, with me when I tease them in that way, particularly senior civil servants. But moving swiftly on, this strain of Euroscepticism in the UK has been around for decades, as you rightly say in the book, and it's been present on the right wing of the Conservative Party, crystallising, I think, and I think you say this in the book, post-Maastricht, that particular treaty change. Um, but of course, the, the, the left and indeed the extreme left of the Labour Party at the time of EU or EEC accession, as it was back in 1973, were also and have been very anti-European. So it's it's really quite strange and unique, I think, in Europe, how both the extreme left and the extreme right are united and have been united for decades on this issue. Am I right that it's, and I know the book starts more or less with the referendum and and, you, and for, I imagine for reasons of space, you don't cover 
the previous 40 years. But yeah. it is an extraordinary thing about British politics, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're right. I mean, the, the, book, very, the, book, the book doesn't even try to explain the referendum result, doesn't discuss the campaign, anything like it starts off. There's a little bit of stuff in the conclusion about, about the, you know, about the, the, the 40 years before that. And it's a huge kind of, it's a huge story. I mean, of course, that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, the opposition to the to joining the what was then the EEC was from, primarily from the left and from the the, the, you know, the far left, if you like uh, that, and not at all from 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 the right. Uh, very very well, sorry, that's, that's true. But also at that even at that time from the nationalist right, you know, from the sort of Elon Powell kind of people, but not the, the the mainstream of the Tory Party. And then, as you say, that kind of shifted in the Tory Party. I mean, it's a long story in terms of what you know the Maastricht debates, you know, very much sort of trigger that. But then the Labour Party, by and large, you know, moved in in over in in, the, in, the, in those years to becoming much more. I mean, in the 1983 election, they they had campaigned on on the mandate of leaving the EEC. But of course, that all that had a strange afterlife because Jeremy Corbyn, who by the time of Brexit was the Labour leader, had been an acolyte of Tony Benn and an and had voted with the Maastricht rebels of the Tory Party in the early 90s. I mean, look, because you know you you know as, as much about about their history as, as 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 I do and it's a it's a you know and, and the whole issue about Britain not wanting to join and then wanting to join and being rebuffed and then joining and, and I can't really add to that but I'll, I'll just sort of say one thing if I could you feel oh which is not in the book and if you'll forgive me which is a more more, more personal story uh, in a way which is which I think illustrates some some of this stuff and 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 so in 1973, when Britain joined the EEC, I was eight, okay? And I was at junior school, and, and the headmistress of the junior school, who, I don't know this for a fact, but my, my feeling would be, you know, was a sort of deeply conservative in her in her manner, in fact, was very much like Margaret Thatcher, in fact, who at the time was very, you know, of course, pro-EEC. And it, there was this kind of feeling that we had this pageant about joining Europe, and there was a there was a um, she composed a song about the wonderful dream of Europe and all of that kind of thing. But that idea, which is extraordinary thinking about it now, you know, and but that idea never never really took root in Britain or particularly in England. And one of the reasons for that is that even people who were really quite pro, who, who were very pro-EU, never really publicly made the case for it. It was always very kind of transactional. There was no sense, even from, say, someone like Tony Blair, who was probably the most pro-EU prime minister since Heath, of, you know, really not just that the EU was worthwhile, but that it was something that Britain was shaping in terms of both the single market and in terms of the Easter's expansion. But anyway, the personal story, or the, 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 the other bit of the personal story I want to tell you, is that we, if I think about my father dead before the referendum, he would most certainly have voted to leave the EU if he had been alive in 2016. But in 1975, I can remember that referendum and I can remember him voting in favour. But the reason was, was that it, is that he thought, oh, well, Britain is in such a mess, we can't do anything else, you know. So it was a resentful, grudging sense, almost a sense of having, of it being a kind of a humiliation. And his phrase, both at that time, and it was a phrase I heard him use a lot in my childhood, was, and a lot of British people of his generation used this, oh, we won the war, but we lost the peace. And that after, so, and so I draw two things from that. One is, one is that, so that for people like him, and I'm sure he wasn't alone in this, that vote in 1975, although there was 67% or whatever voted to say in, 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 in the EC, it was not a kind of a, it was not in that spirit of my headmistress talking about the wonderful dream. It was in the spirit of, well, we've got to do it. Um, I think that's very insightful, Chris. And we, we, we 
for reasons of time, we, you know, we, th- yes, it's it probably right. a different conversation, but I was 15 in 1973. So I, I, I really do remember this. Yeah. And having researched it subsequently and, and taken a strong interest in all of these things for many years, I know that the reason why Britain wanted to join was because of Britain's relative economic decline in the, yeah. in the previous post-war years. Yeah. And they'd seen this, the, econo- the relative economic success that they had made. And as you rightly say, they, they, they'd been attempted two uh, joinings and had been turned down by de Gaulle twice, the famous non. It's qu- two quite different things, isn't it? When the EU and the reason why it was put together and why all of those people, all of those countries, the original six, all that um, highfalutin stuff about avoiding war and never, never going to do this uh, fighting <laughs> over certain things ever again, quite uh, admirable but high-minded reasons for doing it, and you and you, then you get well, we're joining because we don't want to fall behind. Mm. Uh, yeah. it, it, the motivation is it, you, you've then got um, t- uh, members of the club who have quite different reasons for joining, yeah. and if those reasons clash, as we subsequently saw, it kind of sort of explains. And I think that where you've just put it there is incredibly insightful. So, so thank you for that. Why do you think they hate the EU so much? I'm not sure they do. Well, I'm not sure they do. The they is in, in, in that. I've I mean, heard Brexiteers say, I, mean, I really I mean, hate the EU. Yeah, yeah. And then, they, you know, but they always say, we love Europe, but we hate the EU. And, or even we're leaving, we're leaving the EU, but we're not leaving Europe. None of these things really make any sense. I mean, what I was going to say is that, is that, I, is that I think for, I think in a lot of cases, even maybe people who say that, I mean, the EU became this kind of blank canvas that they could project all kinds of, you know, often very diverse hatreds or, 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 or you know, complaints kind of so psychology forgive me for interrupting yeah. that's psychology again isn't it projection which is a I very think, precise yeah, psychological yeah. term it is a psychological term but, it, but it's a but it's not just to do with an individual psychology is it because it's a kind of a cultural mm-hmm. psychology and so i think there's you know so so so, so, so you get this kind of um, different kinds of things of sort of you know well you know they're taking away our industry and all of this kind of thing but 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 then there's also something which is to do with and I think this really came out really horribly in the in the years after the referendum. A lot of that hatred wasn't so much to, towards the EU per se, but it was a hatred towards the kind of the kind of the, as they would say the metropolitan liberal elite, who were the sort of you know the kind of the EU representatives on so on earth. You know, so so it wasn't so much it wasn't so much well we hate the Roman Catholic Church, but we hate the priests. You know, something yes, like that. Indeed, and and. and and so there's that kind of, but I mean, undoubtedly within all that, there were people who, who generally did have this hatred for the EU. And I think that, I mean, some of those people are free market liberals who see it as interfering with, I mean, that in itself is a whole other story because, because, because I think those free market liberals just simply fail to understand the nature of what global regulation and trade mean. They think they have this naive idea of, of trade and markets mean the absence of regulation rather than... But that's a whole other story. Well, it's, it's, it's forgive me, just I think it's an important point that you make in the book and, and just worth emphasising it here is that it's a very 19th century view of trade, isn't it? Yeah, that's... it really is. And, and that mattered because it's what... It is what led people, those people, to think that they wanted to say, well, we, you know, oh, well, we thought we were just joining a free trade bloc. And so, uh, and they thought, well, we can have a free trade agreement, which will in some way replicate single market membership. And they didn't understand the fundamental difference between those things. And, and, and I would say the core of the fundamental difference 
and the reason why it's so important in particular for services is that what a single market does fundamentally is create a single regulatory space. And it's the abolition or, or, or well, it's always the, the, the sharing of regulations that breaks down the barriers to trade. But as soon as you have shared regulation, then you have to have institutions that both make those regulations and enforce them, which automatically conflicts with the Brexiters' idea of sovereignty. But somehow they kind of thought, well, some of them anyway, I think genuinely thought that that that, that you could re- that you could replicate a single market in some form of trade agreement, and and you could, it was interesting because as if all we wanted is a Canada style deal, a free trade agreement. That's what they would just say all the time. But whenever Tusk or Barnier said you can have a Canada style deal, it's going to be much less good than your current access. They said, oh, why are they talking about punishing us? Well, they weren't talking about punishing you. They said you can have this Canada Canada style deal. That's what you want. But when it was said by the EU, it, and, and, and the EU was saying, and therefore that means it's not as good as single market, they were saying it's punishment. But just very, very quickly, just to finish, I think there's an interesting sort of strand among some of those senior kind of Brexiters that, that uh, I don't talk about this in the book, but, but I've seen other people write about it, is that very often they come from these kind of quite strange kind of expat, because British people abroad are not immigrants, right? They're expats. Um, this kind of expat, <laughs> man, expat mentality, you know, many of them were kind of, you know, were born in, you know, I don't know, um, you know, I think I think Hannon, Daniel Hannon was born in Peru and, and you know, they were born in different places. And maybe they were kind of like in boarding schools and have this kind of picture of the United Kingdom, you talk about the 19th century, but actually it's more kind of like a 1950s picture. And you can see this all again with all the current stuff going on about, oh, trade deal with Australia or New Zealand, or very often, or some of the hardcore people, what we want is Kanzuk, you know, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, UK, this kind of thing. And it's like, have these people been to Vancouver or Toronto or Sydney in the last 50 years? They, they kind of seem to imagine it, these places which are populated effectively by, you know, by, 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 by people constantly looking back to the mother country. You know, it's, it's, it's this kind of imagination of somebody. Uh, I think it's some guy that writes under the pen name Otto English. I'm not sure his, 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 his real name is. Talked about this as the kind of, I think, the sort of ladybird, ladybird picture of, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. And those, and for those people, I think they do hate the EU because it's the antithesis. Yes, I can remember going back to that 1973 decision that a lot of the far less virulent than it is today press focused very much on anchor butter at the time. And which was the, which was one of the very few butters that was, were on sale in in the UK, saying yes, we're, we're going, we're not going to have access to anchor butter from Australia anymore. And of course, it did have the effect, didn't it? Of, it did, uh, absolutely. Know, very much disrupting, which is still, I think, felt rather resentfully amongst Australian and uh, indeed Zealand farmers of that generation. Indeed. In the book, you go through a lot of the ways in which the, the Brexiteers were factually incorrect, and that's brilliantly documented. But one of the things that you don't do, if you don't mind me saying, is that there's not an awful lot of criticism of the EU in the book. Any particular reason for that? Because the, the book isn't really in, meant to be uh, a discussion of the, of, the, of the merits or otherwise of being a member of the EU. I mean, it, it, you know, in a sense, it's kind of, precisely because it starts and takes off from the point of the decision to leave you know it's kind of i didn't want to kind of relitigate those those arguments um, and, and that's and i think that's that's a that's a very um on point answer but of course the, you know that the reason why i'm asking it is that in in that famous old cliche all great lies have a kernel some great lies have a kernel of truth 
Do you think that there were any aspects of the Brexiters' arguments that did have a kernel of truth? I mean, you know, I I, I felt, and, and this isn't, and this is not me saying it in in, in hindsight, because I because I because I I, I know that I, I wrote it sometime before the referendum that. You know, there were issues about the both the quality and the transparency of democratic process and accountability within the EU. And I think, I mean, I, I, I'm not persuaded by that necessarily as an argument for or against Brexit, because you could say the same thing about the political system of the United Kingdom, right, which is not exactly, but still that. And I think that, I mean, this wouldn't be, I think, necessarily the criticism the Brexiters would make, because it's almost the opposite, opposite way around. But I feel as if the EU has pursued an economic project in particular through the euro which really which 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 which, which then moves towards a political project and i think it should have been the other way around in other words you know I, in particular in relation to 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 the to the single currency i think that the logical and honest way to proceed would be to have political unification as a prelude to single currency, I'm thinking particularly of fiscal policy, because uh, and, and so you haven't given up being an economist. <laughs> no, <laughs> not entirely, but I, I think maybe economics gave me up. But um, and so, but of course, you know, having said that, I mean, you know, the reason why one of the reasons why that is the case is because countries, probably most most influentially, the UK, you know, were so determined that the EU would not go down. That kind of. In other words, I suppose what I'm really trying to say is that is that uh, is uh, this is different to the Brexiters, but it's the mirror image. Is that I think that the European Union ought to be a super state, and that and and that it's and that its failure to become a super state is an important argument. It's an important argument against it, right? Obviously, that's the inverse. And of course, the other thing, which you know, is is I think we'll see how it pans out. But I mean, I don't. Think, for example, that the EU is being nearly robust enough with respect to Hungary or with respect to Poland. You know, so, so I think you know there the, are the, the, those 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 kinds of things. As well. Yes, I I think absolutely. The answer I would give to my own question is that there are plenty of things that one can criticise the EU for, but none that amount to a case for leaving it. And don't you think, you know, because don't you also think that in a way that there's a certain kind of naivety here as well about this? You know, of course, this is like an imperfect institution. You know, are we going to say that the British polity is a perfect institution, that the American constitution, that Ireland, you know, any country that you need? But, but it, it's, 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 it's a fantasy to imagine, you know, either it's perfect or we leave it. Yes, and I'm conscious of your time, Chris, and you can, you can probably imagine that there are so many things in, in your book that I, I would love to talk to you about. But one quote amongst lots that leapt off the page at me was the following. Brexit has bequeathed a way of governing which is largely impervious to reason. I think that encapsulates an awful lot. I think it's bang on the money. But what really worries me, Chris, is that that is still the case. You're not describing the past. You're describing the the Britain that I am living in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Would you agree? I do. You know, and I think that that you know that that kind of the, the project fear line that started, you know, with the well, as we come back to the, the Scottish referendum as well, I suppose, but that that kind of closed down rational debate, and you see it coming through again in relation to obviously the dominant issue has been kind of COVID. Now that's quite interesting because you could say that has kind of forced the government to a certain degree of rationality 
around, you know, but, but even then you can see how reluctant Boris Johnson has been to make those kinds of decisions about, you know, lockdown, all those kinds of things. And certainly amongst that kind of overlap, as there is between some of the very hardcore Brexiters and the very anti-lockdown people, you can see that that kind that, you know, that kind of, of irrationality. And then I think also in terms of the way that what Johnson's what Johnson's government has done and what they've taken over from, from Brexit is this kind of emphasis upon the symbolism of of politics in terms of so uh, you know the trade deals or something like that it's like saying you know well 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 these, well these are a good thing why are they a good thing well because we made it ourselves you know well, what does it actually deliver economically so so well it, it doesn't matter you know we the point about the independent trade policy is it's independent and not you know and i think that kind of i think and i and i I mean, it's important not to be too kind of sort of starry-eyed about this because, I mean, it's not that we ever had some golden age of political rationality, right? I mean, you know, you probably would agree with that, I could guess, you know? Yes. Um, and it actually, even, I don't think that one would necessarily want a politics that was sort of kind of kind of solely kind of rational. But I think that the, I think the great dishonesty, and maybe this is a good place to kind of finish with this, the great dishonesty about about this, which is also present in the Brexit thing, is that they took something that is, is is that they presented all of this as if it were rational. If you look at those vote leave materials um, and videos and so on and so forth before the referendum, you know, actually they're very, very kind of bread and buttery. You know, it's like, well, you know, if we leave the EU, you'll have, you know, you'll have better access to your GP, you'll have more money for your schools, you'll have more money for your hospitals, you know, there'll be more housing, all of these kinds of things. And it was, and it's only later when they kind of said, "Oh um, no, didn't we tell you? You know, you voted to take back control." You know, it's, I mean, they don't actually say this, but 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 implicitly they're saying, you know, you know, you're going to have to just sort of suck up the fact, you know, of, of the economic consequences, you know, because you voted for the, you know, you voted for the freedom, you know, um, and so that that's a kind of it, that that kind of irrationality, I think, is is permanently kind of it deforms politics. Not least because of the fact, and this is the, again, it's the subtitle of the book. Not least because of the fact that it can't deliver what it promises, and ultimately that that evacuates any commitment to the political system at all, because it tells people that whatever they are told, they're not going to get it. And that speaks to, in part at least, the culture war that Brexit most definitely unleashed, and you you talk about that in so many different ways throughout the book. My sense of that culture war is that it's actually getting worse rather than better. And that, that, for me, combined with my sense that quite often when you listen to a political debate in this country now, it's often seen, the most bizarre issues are often seen through um, leave or remain lens. Or you can predict where somebody stands on a particular issue, depending on whether they were a leaver or a remainer. It seems to have infected, like a pandemic, everything and um that worries me and kind of like a almost like you know i don't know dramatize it but almost like a kind of like a, a civil war in as much as there's a, you know, there's always now as you i guess you i guess you would agree is that when you meet people for the first time and people do this maybe not quite so much now as as, as immediately after but do this little kind of dance a verbal dance to try to work out what you know where where, where people stand um or where they you know or, or you know, where they stood and it's 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 yeah i mean it's been awful in that way i, I just want to say because i know that we're going to go to going to close but i i know that you have a lot of listeners in ireland and, and and one of the things that i wanted to say and, and i know 
my blog gets read in, in quite a bit in Ireland. There's, it does. Uh, one, one reason for that, I think, is that for a lot of people, not just in Ireland, but across the EU, they want to have some kind of handle on, you know, what the hell has happened to the Brits? Why have they gone so mad? And, um, but what I really wanted to, 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 to say was that, from my point of view, the quality of Irish journalism and Irish academic comments in particular, uh, and indeed Irish statecraft in, in terms of Brexit, has been just just hugely impressive, you know. And I mean, I could you knew even more with your own, not least in your own writing, but you know, thinking of people like Tony Connolly and, and other and, and Fintan O'Toole, who we mentioned earlier, and, and, and many many people. And I think that's that's been you know just the, that's just been extraordinary. And 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 and, I, and the quality of that coverage and commentary on Brexit, you know, has been so refreshing compared with. Um, that of the United Kingdom. And of course, much more extensive than it has been in other EU countries for obvious reasons. You know, so I mean, there are interesting things written in, in I mean, I read the French press uh, quite a lot and, and, and I read the German press to an extent and so on and so forth. But, but there hasn't been nearly the same attention there. So, um, so, and imagining that amongst your listeners, maybe some of those, some of, some of those, indeed, some of those writers and journalists and politicians, I would like to say that. Thank you, Chris. And I think that that's probably a good point to to end this discussion, although I think certainly I would love to continue it for much longer. But to commend to all of our listeners this book that Chris Gray has written, Brexit Unfolded. Um, It is published today. It comes with a wholehearted recommendation from me, at least. It contained much that I had forgotten and much that I didn't know. And it really is a must read for anybody trying to get a handle on what Britain has gone through over the last few years and probably is going to go through over the next few years. So a big, big thank you to Chris for writing the book and a big thank you for speaking to me on this podcast today. Many, many thanks, Chris. Thank you, Chris. That was very interesting. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.